We're in the book of Judges again this morning, chapter 2, and the great theme of the book of Judges has to deal with compromise and the lack of leadership calling you to account for your responsibilities. And without following God's word and compromising on it, even in a little area of your life, it can lead to incredibly devastating consequences. And connected with that, if you have no one as a, an example of godly leadership and no one calling you to the right action of thoughts and feelings and, uh, and, and actions, it complicates the matter. And all of a sudden, it just is one snowball effect after the other, and eventually you fall into a place where Israel was. And Israel was in a really bad place in chapter 1 of the book of Judges, having compromised everywhere. Everywhere they compromised. They were called by God to enter into this beautiful promised land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. And the only, the only kind of guideline God gave them was, when you enter into the land, if there are people there, Get rid of them. Don't murder them. You don't have to murder them. If they go to war with you, that's fine. But make peace with them and tell them they have to move on. Because if they stay with you, if they stay in your cities, if they stay in your community, they are going to lead to compromise and they will lead you down a path of sin. Abraham Lincoln once said regarding the Civil War, he said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And there is a beautiful um, story happening in the book of Joshua. And, I, and remember I told you at the very beginning, I'm going to really mess up Joshua and Judges. Not only are they right next to each other, but in my mind, they kind of feel one and the same. The story is one big continuation. But in the book of Joshua, before they, they cross over the Jordan River and they are about to take on the first city of conquest. Now, that first city of conquest is in a dramatic fashion because it's the city of Jericho. And before they go into the city of Jericho, there's a subtle event that takes place in the city of Gilgal. Now, that becomes important when we go back to the book of Joshua, the book of Judges, chapter 2. But in the book of Joshua, the fifth chapter, and you can turn there, but I'm just going to read a few verses here and gives us some context. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, so they're just starting their conquest of the promised land, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or our enemies? So he's asking, where does this man stand? He, he's obviously some imposing figure. He's got a sword. He may be glowing. It doesn't say that, but we get some hints of it. Who are you for? And the person answers in verse 14, Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of Jehovah, I have now come. And then we're given clues on who this person is. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence or worship and asked him, What message does my Lord have for this his servant? Speaking about Joshua. And the commander of Jehovah's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. 
And so Joshua did so. Then this commander of the Lord's army, who we know is the second person of the Trinity, who is Jesus Christ, and we know he is God because he uses that phrase, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. Where has that ever happened again in Scripture? Before, with Moses. As God gives him a charge at that burning bush, you're standing on holy ground, take off your sandals, and Moses obeys. Same language, same idea, same understanding, and Joshua gets confronted with this unusual sight of a warrior in front of him who's not taking sides. And that is incredibly important. You'd say, well, if he's God, he'd be on Israel's side. God doesn't take sides. You are either on God's side or not on God's side. He is who he is. He does not take sides. He's God. You have to relate to him. He doesn't relate to you. You relate to his side, and you either follow his side or you don't follow his side. And I'll tell you, if you follow his side, there's going to be tremendous blessing. And if you don't follow his side, if you take an opposing side to him, if you take an opposing position to him, if you take an opposing attitude towards him, it's not going to go well for you. There are curses and judgment ultimately ending in an eternal separation from the comfortable presence of God in this place he designed for the devil and his followers, a place called hell. Ultimately, that is what happens when you fight against God's side. So that angel, the messenger, Jesus Christ himself said, I'm not here to take sides. You either side with me or you're against me. They're faced with a very similar situation. Probably about 30 to 40 years after that moment in the book of Joshua chapter 5, we find ourselves in Judges chapter 2. And in Judges chapter 2, uh, in Judges chapter 2, uh, starting in the first uh, verse and a half, remember the first chapter was all about so-and-so took this land and let them live there, so-and-so took this land and let them live there, so-and-so took this land and let them live there. And this went on for all 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, we're starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, and it gives us a little bit of feedback on the first chapter. So this is God's commentary on the first chapter. He says, The angel of Jehovah went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, Remember, Gilgal is where this person first appeared to Joshua some 40 years earlier. Same city, which is a little bit north of Jericho. So from our perspective, a couple weeks back, we said, think of Calvary Church as Jerusalem, and Jericho would be sort of where 25 and Abriendo Avenue meet, kind of geographically. Now, much further away in Israel, but geographically for us, that's kind of where it would be. So a little bit north of that interstate intersection would be maybe where, oh, yes, there's that road, Santa Fe, doesn't it kind of go underneath 25? Okay, so that's kind of where Gilgal is, okay, in relationship to Jericho, in relationship to us. Um, so the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, and look at how he describes himself, and this is why we know this is God appearing to the nation of Israel. The angel of Jehovah said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, 
So, so who's the one who rescued Israel from Egypt? God. Who is the one who promised Abraham, I'm going to give you this land? God did. This is God appearing in what's called a Christophany. Now, that's just a fancy word for the appearance of Christ before he took on human flesh. And it happened several times in the Old Testament. Once we saw in the book of Joshua real quickly, and here. He's saying, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who promised you this promised land. I'm the one who told your forefathers. God is expressing himself in this unusual vision as a messenger. And, oh boy, okay, back up a second. The word angel in Scripture means messenger. It does not always mean this heavenly-bodied person that has no form that we kind of think of flying around the throne room of God. It can refer to that, but the word just simply means messenger. That's what the basic word means, a messenger. And so you could say the messenger of the Lord or the, messenger, or the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, reminded Israel of this very key fact, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, no one alive at the time of the writing of Joshua that, or judges that this is happening to experienced that except they were a child. All the adults had died and died because of their disobedience to God in the wilderness except for two individuals, Joshua and Caleb. They survived because they believed God into the promised land. So he reminds them of a history lesson. I brought you out of Egypt, led you into the land I swore I gave to your ancestors. God is being very clear. I'm the one who established this. I'm the one who created this relationship. And he said, I will never break my covenant with you. God is telling the people of Israel, his people, I'm not going to break my covenant with you. I'm not the one who changes in this relationship. I'm steady. My word is my bond. It is absolutely clear and certain. My word is clear. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. That was their goal. I'm giving you all of this beautiful land filled and flowing with milk and honey. It is ripe for a civilization to be built upon. I'm giving it to you, but there is one condition. When you enter into it, the people who are living there, who are God-haters, who sacrifice their own children, who do not believe in the sanctity of marriage one bit, they are warmongering, they are pagan, they hate me, and they have built idols and sacrifices to trees and, and rivers and mountains and stars and moons and all sorts of spirit animals they believe in, have nothing to do with them, kick them out of the land, and every place that they set up as an idol, destroy it. God says, that's one thing I've asked you to do. And I can imagine at this moment, when this angel of the Lord, this unbelievably scary figure, appears to them, and starts to tell them about the history and the requirements that God required of them. I can imagine their hearts first probably was filled with fear and awe, like, wow, this, this doesn't happen, and immediately filled with 
absolute terror because they see the writing on the wall. They know where this message is going. It started off nice. Hey, I'm here, and remember the history? Yeah, remember the history. Yeah, this is our land. Oh, that's right. Don't make agreements with the people of the land. Kick them out and destroy their places of worship and idolatry. And according to chapter 1, not one of the tribes followed through. They wanted the promise, the land. They wanted the stuff, the land. But they didn't want to do the hard work. And the hard work was not the war. The hard work was staying uncompromised and not letting those people stay. Making them leave. Tearing down the altars. But it was so good for Israel to have this workforce. Yes, they were slaves, but it was really nice for them to have this workforce so that they didn't have to do all the manual labor. I mean, they, they, had, they had all these... They had them under control, too. They beat them in war, and now they just made them slaves. Why would I want to get rid of that workforce? They're, they're working for free, and they're doing all the, that menial labor that we don't want to do. They're building houses and roads and bridges and working in the fields, taking care of the animals... I mean, certainly it's got to be better to make them slaves and workers for us than really kick them out. Did God really say, kick them out? Or did he just simply say, take the land and leave them there and use them? See, I can, because I'm very good at rationalizing my own sin, and I know we all are, I can understand how they got to that place. They didn't immediately get to that place and say, okay, we're going to compromise with God. They got to that place thinking, you know what? God gave us all this land, and it's a lot of land, and in order to use it rightly, we need a lot of workers, and we already beat them. They're not going to influence us. We're for God, and, and they're not going to tell us about their pagan ways, and we're never going to worship Baal. We're never going to sacrifice our children. We're never going to sing their songs and worship the way they worship. We're going to remain true to Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're his children, and God's given us these people. We ought to use them. Yeah, they're under our authority, but we might as well use them because they're here and, you know what, I kind of feel bad for them. They lost pretty badly in battle and we should do our best just to make friends with our neighbors. So, so let's just invite them into our culture, our society, and our cities and they know we're in charge, but um, I'm sure God will be fine with that because we're using the resources the best we can. I can understand their rationalizing their sin, their compromise. And the angel of the Lord comes at the same place that he appeared before they entered a foot into the promised land, before their very first victory over the city of Jericho, saying, you have not held up your end of the bargain. I will always hold my end up. I will always be faithful. My word does not change. I will always be your God and you will always be my people. I will not break my covenant, but you have. And so in that last part of chapter, or verse 2, uh, Joshua says, Judges says, um, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? I don't even know 
I can't imagine that being the first question God ever asked me, face to face. Why have you done this? Why have you compromised? Why did you decide to do your own thing when I told you what to do? Why did you do this? <laughs> you may think that you are very quick on your feet and you can just kind of, you can go with the flow and you got an answer for everything and, and, and you, you oh, I think at that moment, the wisest thing to do is to shut up. I, I, I think the moment that some, someone like this appears to you, God in human form like this, as an angel, I, th I think you need to just fall down and start worshiping. But if he asks you a question, I think it's best that you don't come up with excuses. I think it is best if you don't say, I saw the tribe of Benjamin over there, and they seem to be doing just okay with their group of people that they had under control, and so, you know, and then Simeon did it too, and, uh, you know, Joshua, you know, uh, judges, uh, Joshua, the tribe of Joshua, they did it. Um, not the tribe of Joshua, the tribe of Judah. Too many J's. Bottom line is I've seen everybody else doing it and they're being okay. You know, they're, they're building up. No excuses. At that moment, I think it is really good for you to simply take it. To own up to it and say, you're right, God. You have been faithful every step of the way. You have blessed me every step of the way. I have failed at obeying you. I have compromised. I rationalized it. No excuses. No shifting blame. Do not respond like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Remember when Adam and Eve in the garden heard God walking through after they had sinned? What was their answer to a question very similar to this? Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? What was Adam's response? <laughs> this woman you gave me. Two blames. One on God. You gave me this woman. And then the second blame is this woman. And what was her excuse? This serpent. Again, blaming God for part of his creation. Wrong answer. The beautiful thing is the children of Israel learned from history. They learned from history. They learned from that example of Adam and Eve and didn't start making excuses. And we'll see that flesh through. In verse 3 of Judges chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, we have kind of the consequences, especially in verse 3, going forward. He says, this is the angel of the Lord, this is God speaking, and I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. God says, if you're going to compromise with me on this one thing, I've said, drive them out and destroy their altars, their temples, their places of worship. Remove their influence. But because you haven't, they're going to become a snare to you. And for the entirety of the book of Judges, 350 years worth of history, 
all of those Hittites, Ittites, and Ittites all became a snare and a trap for Israel. Israel, for 350 years, went through this cycle of standing firm on God and getting rid of the pagans to inviting them in and making them part of their families through marriage. Always believing that they were the exception. They were strong enough to resist the compromise and temptation of sin. That their family was going to be different. They were going to win over the other families to their faith. And it never happened. It always worked the other way around. Inviting them into their families, into Israel's families, always led to compromise, backsliding, and sin by the very next generation. And God said that's going to be one of the penalties that you face for the 40 years of compromise you've had so far in the land of Israel. You're going to be plagued by trials and temptations to compromise. I said that Israel learned a lesson, and they changed. Because in verse 4 and 5, we're told about how Israel responded to this. Israel did not offer up excuses. Israel did not say, you didn't provide us good enough leadership, God. If you had provided us better leaders, we would have known. No. Look at how they responded. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud. And they called the place Bochim, which is right near Gilgal, and it means the place of weeping. Verse 5, and they called the place Bochim, and they offered up sacrifices to the Lord. They did three things in that moment. The first thing that they did is that they wept. They cried. They anguished in their heart, their soul, their spirit, and they wept. They cried. I can probably count on my hand five or six times in my life that I remember crying. Well, because, you know, I'm a man. Men don't cry. Not in America. Even if you get hurt, I remember my first t-ball baseball coach when I got hit by a ball and I went down, and I grabbed my leg, and he could tell my lip was starting to quiver. He goes, you never cry. I go, mm-hmm. you know. he, he didn't say rub dirt in it. It wasn't a cut. He just said, don't cry. And you know what? I pretty much have stayed true to that, to my shame. Because there are a number of times when God has convicted me of sin that I should have just been broken and admitted my brokenness and acknowledged my brokenness to God and said, I am undone. Heal me. Save me. Forgive me. Instead, we often kind of stop that lip from quivering And we just kind of take out that get-out-of-jail-free card, say, yeah, Jesus forgives me, and we move on. Israel, when confronted with their compromise and their sin, didn't use their get-out-of-jail-free card and move on. They were struck to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. They were broken, and they cried. 
nothing wrong with crying over sin. Jesus even cried over death when his friend Lazarus died. He wept. Pain and sorrow brings tears, and there is nothing wrong at the right time and season to weep over your sin. To my shame, I can only count once in my life where I felt that brokenness to where I wept before God for my sin after I became a Christian. To my shame. But it struck them. God's Spirit had worked in their hearts. The Lord had said the right words, and they were real with themselves. No excuses. They were real with themselves in front of God, admitting I was wrong. And they cried. And the second thing they did is mark it for memory. They named the town it happened in Weeping. They wanted to make sure that every time they passed by and they saw that town on the map or on their GPS and it said the town of Weeping, they were reminded of the moment God convicted them of sin and they were broken. They wanted a reminder of that event. Why do you think there's a cross there? Make it pretty? There's a cross there to remind us Jesus died and is victorious because it's empty. There's no hanging Christ on it because the work is done. But it's there to remind us of the sacrifice your sin created for Jesus. The pain he had to go through so you could be free of sin and punishment and guilt and shame and have peace and joy and love. It's there to remind you every time you walk into this building, the cost for you to walk into this building was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Every single time. And so every time they walked past that town that said the town of weeping, they were reminded. And I can imagine, and, and, and this happens in Israel often, in the history of Israel, that they will set up stones or a monument or they will name a tree or a well or a mountain to remind the people of what God had done. They did one when they crossed over the Jordan River and they were victorious over Jericho. They built this mound of stones so that every time you walked by, a parent, a grandparent, could tell the children and grandchildren, this is what God did here. Why did God name the town Weep? Well, let me tell you. When we came over and was given great victory over the lands of the people, we compromised. And that compromise cost us dearly. We sinned against God. And God confronted us. And God said, I'm holy. I don't compromise. I don't change my word. You have failed at the contract we made. And we were broken that day. And we wept. And we named this place so that we would never forget that God does not compromise. That we were broken before him. And then the third thing they did is they offered sacrifices. It cost them something. Do you think those animals that they sacrificed were free? The government just gave it to them? They paid out of their own pocket for every animal they sacrificed. That was part of God's relationship with them and say, it's got to cost you something. You have to know how costly sin is because God will bring his son into history. And it will cost him the life of his son. And so it cost them something. 
So their sorrow, their heart prick of conviction, wasn't just simply a cry and a naming of a place and they were done. It cost them something. Physically, financially, their sin was on display and they owned up to it. They offered sacrifices to the Lord. That brings me to a question as we come to um, the take-home section. How do you know if I'm compromising? How do I know if I'm compromising? I mean, there's a lot written in this book, a lot written in this book. So how do I know if I'm being like Israel and compromising somehow? Well, I think very clearly Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Okay, keep my commandments. If I'm keeping God's commandments, both in my heart as well as my hands, it's not just outward obedience because he wants a heart of obedience. So if my heart, my attitude, my thinking, my emotions, my feelings, my dreams, my hopes, if they are in line with God's commandments, then I know I'm not compromising. But at the moment, my thinking, my feeling, my dreams, my hopes, my desires, my actions deviate from his commandments, I can guarantee you, you are living in sin. I'm not saying you're sold out to it, but I'm saying it's in your life. It's infected you. It's influencing you. It's there. And unless you get rid of it, it will spread with far greater consequences than cancer could ever spread through your body because it attacks your soul. His commandments. His commandments. His commandments. There's another way to see and understand this in James chapter 4. James says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Because there are some times that God puts something in your heart and mind and there's not a scripture verse for it. But maybe the way you're treating someone, maybe the way you're thinking or dreaming about something or hoping for something. And God says, you know that that guilt that comes into your mind, that uneasy feeling of going, ooh, I wish I had taken that back and not said it that way. God says, you need to listen to that. It's not a good angel and a bad angel sitting on your shoulder trying to convince you to do something. It's God's Spirit in your heart saying, you did not succeed where you should have. Listen to him. Follow him. Now all of that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost because you are absolutely vulnerable before God when you ask him, reveal any wicked way within me that I might repent of. Because he'll show you. If you are honest before God and say, show me my heart, show me my actions, are they in line with you? I guarantee you, he will show you something. He's not ever going to tell you, oh, that's fine, you're perfect. Not everybody else's, but you're fine, you're perfect. Until that day when we are in glory with him, he is working on each and every one of us conforming us into the image of his son more and more each day, which means we have things that have to be whittled and chiseled away in our life to be more like Christ. That's called sin. Arrogance, pride, 
self-righteousness. Whittles it away. So if I am convicted of that sin, if I feel the pain of that sin, if I am faced with that shame of sin, then this verse is for you. There are very few verses in Scripture that I think that you should have memorized because all of God's Word is amazing and beautiful in its part. This verse from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is a verse you need to text yourself so you never forget this verse. It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we weep? We don't offer sacrifices anymore. We can't name towns or our house. That would just be a little weird. But he has called us to repent. And he's told us when we repent, when we confess our sins, the beautiful response that God has is he will forgive you. And I know you're going to say, well, Tim, maybe my sin isn't all that bad. Listen, if he's convicting you of that sin, it's bad. But you might also say, but Tim, you don't understand the sin that I'm dealing with. I've been dealing with it for years. I've tried to gain victory over it, but I can't. I can't keep coming back to him asking forgiveness. He's going to say no. I don't want to hear that no. I don't want to be rejected, so I'm just going to ignore it. God says, come to me. If you are burdened with that sin, come to me, and he will forgive you. Seventy times seven in a single day, he will forgive you. There is not a sin that you can mention. Adultery, no, he can forgive it. Pornography, he can forgive it. Substance abuse, no, he can forgive it. Unfaithfulness in my thoughts, no, he can forgive it. Stealing, no, he can forgive it. Murder, no, he can forgive it. Terrorism, he can forgive it. Racism, he can forgive it. Bigotry, he can forgive it. He can forgive it. He can forgive it. He can forgive the lying, the gossip, the slander. He can forgive the meanness and the anger, the vindictiveness and retribution that you never act on, but you think about it. He can forgive it. He can forgive laziness. He can get, forgive disobedience to parents. He can forgive it. He can forgive every time you have lusted, every time you have coveted. He can forgive every time you forgot to acknowledge him in thanks. He can forgive every time your heart wasn't in it when you worshipped. He can forgive it. He can forgive everything except rejection of him blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But then you wouldn't be worried about conf confession if that was the case, because you wouldn't be a believer. But as a believer, he can forgive everything. Everything you come to him with, he will forgive. And he is faithful in that forgiveness. Faithful in that forgiveness. It brings us, lastly, to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 in which Peter says, The Lord, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
It is not too late. You are not too far gone to weep before God in confession of your sin. Now, you might think this morning was a real downer of a message. You may think, oh, man, I, I didn't need this on top of everything else I was getting in life. Life is hard enough, and I don't need one of these high fire and brimstone. I only mentioned hell once, twice now, all right? And I focus much more on the cross and much more on the fact that you can be right with him than I did on the wrongness. So it's a joyful message. And as the band comes up, and I'm going to close in prayer, we're going to sing a song, How Great Is Our God. I don't know if there was ever a moment today where you could sing more glorious to God than at this moment. Because that cross, that reminder of his sacrifice, lives in your heart as his children. And how can we not declare? No, the, the band came up. I'm still talking. I'm kind of talking longer so you guys have time to come up here so we don't have that awkward minute of silence. Now we do. Uh, declaring how mighty is our God is declaring how great his salvation is in our case. So let's stand. We're going to sing our hearts out to this song. And if the Lord leads you to confess your sins during this, make it right with him because he will restore you completely in this very moment.
see you back here next week. Two last things to remind you of. One, if you need help figuring out that QR code for your phone, come up here and see me afterwards. I'd be willing to help you with that. And Logan has a quick announcement. Yeah, for youth, guys, we're doing a Super Bowl party next Sunday. Um, families and friends, everybody's welcome, but specifically the youth are hosting it. It's at 4 o'clock. The game starts about 4.30, and if you're like me and you don't really care about either of the teams, we're going to have <laughs> fun games and snacks. I'm all about the snacks and all the fun games, so it should be a good time hanging out with each other and just enjoying each other. So, yeah, if you want to come, if you know youth, plan on coming there, 4 o'clock Sunday. Awesome. All right, see everybody next week. Bye.